Well, I was warned after last week's sermon to never introduce a sermon like that again. And so I will take a, a word from the congregation to, to not be so overly dramatic. At least it's not about falsified things. But there's still drama that's going on. Still things that, that have the potential to shake us to our core. If you need a reminder of that, just think about the events that we just commemorated yesterday. Events that happen in life that change the trajectory, the course of an entire society. 20 years ago, yesterday, uh, people woke up as they normally do. They had their coffee, maybe breakfast, the kids got dressed for school, the, the parents dressed for work. And then in an instant, the world changed. Planes hit two towers in New York, another a building in Washington, D.C., another that was aimed for the White House that ended up crashing in Pennsylvania. Those events shocked the world and sent ripple effects throughout history. And to, to note just how magnificent, how, how big, how, how magnanimous those events were, you hear people using the phrase, Never forget. There are certain things that happen in life that you are to never forget, that shake you and shape you forever. But it's not only the bad news and tragic events to do that. Friends, it's good news and wonderful events to do that. For a Christian, we have another event that has happened that we are to never forget. And in our passage this morning, we see the Apostle Paul point our eyes to Jesus Christ and what he's done for us as the most important event of all history that all people for all time ought to look back upon and never forget the reverberating effects of what Christ Jesus has done for his people. We see that this morning in the book of 1 Timothy as we continue our study through this epistle to Timothy, Paul's protege. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. As you turn there, just a, a reminder that the Apostle Paul writes this book to his understudy, Timothy. The year is about 65 AD. Timothy has been left in Ephesus. He's, he's faced with some problems, and so Paul writes to him to, to instruct him how to, to live as a pastor and the church how to live as a church. And so these words to Timothy then still have effects for us now as the church of God, how we should live under the hand of God as a people pointed towards faith in the Son of God. First Timothy chapter 1, and this morning we'll look at verses 12 through 20. Paul says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted in ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy. And deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world 
to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So here's what I think is the main point of these few verses, verses 12 through 20. The main point of our passage. The grace of God towards sinners is the foundation and fuel for faithful ministry. The grace of God towards sinners is the foundation and the fuel for faithful ministry. And the two parts of that main point will serve as the two points of our sermon as we walk through this text together. So point number one, the grace of God towards sinners is the foundation for faithful ministry. We see that in verses 12 through 17. And point number two, the grace of God towards sinners is the fuel for faithful ministry. We see that in verses 18 through 20. So one, the grace of God towards sinners is the foundation for faithful ministry. And point two, the grace of God towards sinners is the fuel for faithful ministry. Point number one, the grace of God towards sinners is the foundation for faithful ministry. And just a shock exorbitant, this is the longest point by far, all right? So don't trip out. All right, the grace of God towards sinners is the foundation for faithful ministry. That is, that God's grace is the starting point, the basis both for the minister and his ministry. It is the pillar for both the teacher and his teachings. God, by his gracious acts, puts people into his service. In light of what Paul said to Timothy in the first part of chapter 1, about the false teachers and what they're teaching, he means here to instruct Timothy on the nature of true teachers, of faithful teachers. We've been made such by God's grace. And we are to give ourselves to teaching, to proclaiming the glorious message of the gospel of God's grace. Remember the last few verses we looked at last week when Paul talked about the false teachers of the law, using the law wrongly. And then he pointed to how the law should be used to shed a light on the sinfulness of human beings as opposed to God's holy standard. He showed how the law condemned specific sins, striking parents, murder, sexual immorality, homosexuality, stealing and enslaving, lying and perjuring. And then 
He ended in verses 10 and 11 by saying that the law condemns whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Well, when thinking about this glorious gospel that he's been entrusted with, it's like a light to gasoline and sparks Paul off into going in to describe how that happened. How did I get entrusted with such a glorious message? How did I get this task to take the message of Jesus Christ to others? It's like Paul can't help himself but to go on and meditate on it. And not just meditate on it, but to show Timothy how you became a minister by the grace of God. And as Paul thinks about it all, it leads him not to commending himself and his influence and his gifts, but giving gratitude to God. Look at verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength. A Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent. The gratitude is the outward expression of humility. We don't think too highly of yourself. We don't think that you deserve or are owed anything. You give thanks to God for everything. Now, Paul thanks God here because he understands how undeserving he is. He thanks him for giving him strength when he was weak, less than weak when he was dead in his sins. But God gave him life. And not only that, he set him on a new course. He strengthened me, and Paul says he considered me, judged me faithful, trustworthy, appointing me to his service. And what astonishes Paul so much is how unqualified he was for this service. And some of us know the feeling. Now, some of us have had jobs over the years that we had no business getting. I mean, you read the minimum job qualifications, what they were expecting, and you yourself knew the skills and the experience that you lacked. And you figured, well, I'm going to apply anyway and just see what happens. And you were astonished when that acceptance letter crossed your inbox. And you about did a dance, shouting around the house, thanking the Lord Jesus for showing you kindness. You see, the more unlikely a situation is, the more likely you are to give thanks when it happens. For Paul to be saved and enlisted into God's service was as unlikely a situation as could have been imagined. He didn't even apply to be saved. He didn't submit a resume to be in ministry. But God, acting as a divine headhunter, sought him out. Even though Paul's references and social media posts would reveal this about him. He's a blasphemer, a persecutor, an opponent of Jesus. In other words, the last person who should be in service for Christ. But God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts, not our thoughts. And Paul even gives this harsh analysis about himself. He knows what he was. Unless you think he's being a humble brag, 
or just being self-deprecating here, just consider how some of the passages in Acts describe him. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is stoned to death for preaching the gospel. And the first verse in Acts chapter 8 says, Saul, which is just Paul's Jewish name, approved of his execution. Two verses later, we read that Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. In Acts chapter 9, verse 1, we read that Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogue in Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, belonging to Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul hated Jesus. He blasphemed against him. He denounced him. And he hated Jesus' people. He hated Christians. He persecuted them. He locked them up. He had them killed. What a stark contrast to his life now. Instead of hatred towards Jesus, Paul begins our passage thanking him. And instead of ravaging the church, seeking Christians to mow them down because of their faith, Paul is writing this letter to build them up and encourage them in the faith. How did such a drastic change happen? God showed mercy. I received mercy, Paul says. God looked upon me and moved towards me with pity and compassion because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. That's not an excuse for sin. Paul letting himself off the hook. But rather it explains what was really the case. He hated Jesus because he didn't truly know about him. He thought that he was doing a service in God's name to stop the spread of this false sect of Christians. But really, he was ignorant of God's plans and ignorant of the identity of God's Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Well, friends, ignorance is what marks all unbelief. I mean, remember what Jesus said even as he was being crucified. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We are ignorant of the, the sin and heinousness of what we're doing. If we truly knew who Jesus is, we'd immediately fall to our faces and worship him instead of turning away and warring against him. And that's what happened with Paul. God mercifully, mercifully opened his eyes on the Damascus Road, and Jesus appeared to him as who he really is, the sovereign Lord and Messiah of all the earth. Paul came onto that road, geared up to go capture Christians. But on that road, he met the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ and was transformed. Look at verse 14. He says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Uh, see here, faith in Christ and love for him are gifts of his grace. 
They're not conjured up within ourselves, but freely given from God. How did Paul go from acting ignorantly in unbelief to now having faith in Christ? How did he go from being a violent opponent of Jesus to now having love for him solely by grace? It's as if Paul was a cup filled to the brim with hatred and unbelief. But God poured out on him grace upon grace upon grace upon grace until his cup overflowed, until all the hatred and unbelief spilled out and all that was left dripping down on every side, pouring out of every pore of his body, was committed faith in Christ and undivided love for him. And he looks back with absolute astonishment and thankfulness at what the Lord has done for and in him. What about you? Do you look back at wonder and give thanks to God for what he's done for and in you? You, you see, if you're a Christian, there's always a once was life. There's always I was formerly life. At least there should be. I think one of the sad realities is that many folks claim to be Christians while still clinging to sin. There hasn't been a clean break from it. All the sins in the past are present in the present. Friends, you might deceive others, but please don't deceive yourself. If your life today, after you've made a profession of faith in Christ, looks the exact same as it did before you professed faith in him, it's a good indication that you don't know Christ at all and haven't experienced the power of his salvation. If you've joined THBC over the last couple of years, that's why we take so much time in your membership interview with me asking a bunch of questions, trying to, to get you to give me as broad and deep an insight into your life as you can, as you recount your testimony. I'm not looking for perfect precision or perfect memory of every detail. There's no cookie cutter response we're after. What I'm really eager to see is that there was once a you defined by bondage to sin and living in it that is different from the you that is present now. No longer in bondage to sin, but freed by the power of the gospel and living for him. Not perfectly, but progressively. Striving to honor the Lord with your words and your works, with your plans and your decisions. And praise God that that's so often the case. I mean, many of you, have recounted with tears in your eyes sometimes how the Lord has been so merciful to you, saving you from a life of sin and unbelief. In preparing this message, I, I look back this week through some of your testimonies of how God has saved you, what God has saved you from. Some of you were once into New Age teachings, others captivated by the teachings of Islam, 
others had fallen prey to the perversity of the prosperity gospel. Uh, some of you followed the ideology of black Hebrew Israelites. Uh, some of you were agnostic. Uh, many of you thought you were Christians, but your lifestyles increasingly convinced you that you couldn't be. You were slaves to sexual sin. You were addicted to alcohol and drugs. You were habitually robbing and stealing and lying. Uh, one brother's testimony says, I was a hippie, drinking, doing drugs, and studying transcendental meditation. Uh, one day he was filled up with drugs, but still empty. And he ran out to an open field and screamed to the Lord, if you're real, show yourself. And over the last 40 years of that brother's life, the Lord's been doing just that. Another brother says he grew up thinking that all Christians were liars and hypocrites. But in college, things in his life were falling apart. And one day, a classmate randomly crossed across campus and invited him to a Bible study. And as he arrived at the Bible study that night, the passage that was being taught was Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And the Lord started working to produce rest in that brother's heart from that day on. One sister, after talking about trying just about every religion there was and engaging in a daily routine of smoking, drinking, and listening to music to try to calm her mind, stated how one day the Lord led her to a passage in Romans where she said a light bulb went off for me. And I felt like God was pulling me towards himself. Another sister concluded her testimony. I wish I could say I always did what was right. But like everyone else, I'm simply a sinner saved by grace. For a Christian, there's a life that's been transformed by the powerful grace of God in the gospel. So that each one of us can say with the former slave trader, John Newton, I am not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I am not what I will be in another world. But still, I am not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Friends, if you're here visiting this morning or you're not a Christian, Understand this about me and the brothers and sisters who were on stage earlier singing or reading scripture, about the people sitting next to you in those chairs. We are not folks who have always had it all together. We have not been holy rollers since day one. We are folks who've done some stuff, who've sinned in some heinous ways. We're not bragging about that or boasting in that, but what we are boasting in is the amazing grace of God to save sinners and put us into his service. Amen. Wherever you find a Christian faithfully serving God, you can follow the trail and find a faithful God pursuing and showering him or her with his grace while they were still foolishly living against him. And when a sinner meets God's grace, Sin is submerged and grace abounds, creating a new man or woman zealous for the Lord. I pray the Lord would open your eyes to, to see that when you see a Christian. 
to see the abundant grace and mercy of God on display. If you are a Christian, I hope you're eager to show that. One way to do that is to openly acknowledge, acknowledge the type of life you've lived, even the bad and the ugly. Now, there can be all sorts of wisdom in keeping some of the gritty details of your past to a select few. You might rightly be trying to protect others from sinning or to protect yourself from dwelling on your past and longing to return to that person. We need wisdom from God in that area. But it strikes me how often Paul openly shared the raw details of his testimony. I mean, he could have easily gotten by in all his letters and interactions by simply stating his present status, an apostle. I mean, he'd instantly have weight and respect. But time and time again, he recalls his past. He does it here in 1 Timothy 1. He does it in Galatians chapter 1. He does it twice in Acts, in Acts 22, in Acts 26. Paul wants people to know that the man before them was not a self-made religious fanatic. The man before them was a born-again Christian whose life was once motivated by hatred for Jesus and for the church, but had been given by the gracious hand of God a new life and a new mission to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. He means to show the matchless glory and mercy of God. So saints, consider how you might use what the Lord has done in your life to draw others to the wonders of God. Consider how you sharing what the Lord has done in your life can build up other Christians in their faith. And notice in this letter, Paul is sharing his testimony, not to unbelievers first and foremost, but to believers, specifically to Timothy and through Timothy to the larger church. His goal isn't their conversion. His goal is to motivate them in their labor. Timothy, if you're feeling beat down in ministry and ineffective, not sure you can do this any longer, not sure you're the right person, not sure you're qualified, well, remember this, you've never been qualified. Your abilities aren't what's most important. God qualifies. God grants grace, a grace that saves and sustains and equips you for every good work. I mean, look at my life and how God has acted. And he's done the same for you. Hence, how might your testimony be used as a tool in the hands of God to grow God's people? Amen. Paul seems to know that, to realize that. But you know, a personal testimony only goes so far. More than what's good for you and what's happened for you is what's good for others, what's true for all. And Paul gets that. You see there, as he moves from solely his experience to a universal truth that can be everyone's experience. In Paul's mind, what's happened to him is a prototype for all people. It's just a live demonstration of what Jesus does for all who trust in him. I think we see that in verse 15. Uh, look there with me. First uh, Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. 
Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance. Now, before we get to the actual saying, just look at Paul's logic here. Because this saying is true, it deserves widespread acceptance by all people. I mean, we know this. There are some truths that we generally, universally accept. What goes up must come down. We acknowledge the truthfulness of the rule of gravity, and so we all accept that statement. Well, Paul here has another trustworthy statement to be accepted by all people. And why stress the the trustworthiness of this statement? Well, I think it's in contrast to the teachings of the false teachers. They're teaching myths, untrue things, and speculative things. And Paul's charge to Timothy and the church is to reject their teachings. But with this true teaching, he commends full acceptance. And Paul points to one foundational and universal truth. The grace of God that he experienced personally, everyone can also experience. Why? Because of this truth, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Maybe you believe that statement is true, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But have you fully accepted it, though? Maybe you feel like you yourself are beyond that, that description of sinners, that your sins are too heinous. But friends, Paul shows the depth of his sins to show that there's no level of sins too hard, too heinous to prevent God from saving you. You see, Jesus didn't come into a world to discover that it was sinful and then to develop a game plan once he found out how bad things were. No, he came into a world that he knew was deeply sinful filled with deeply sinful people, and came with a purpose to save it. You see, no matter how how catchy it is, that song that came out a few years ago from Marvin Sapp just isn't theologically true. You know that song. He saw the best in me. It sounds good. It might even make you feel good. But it just ain't right. The truth is, that Jesus saw the absolute worst in you. He saw all your sinful actions and attitudes. And not only that, he saw all the evil thoughts and intentions and desires and longings of your heart, and he still came to save you. You know, they say if you, if you saw everything that goes on in the fast food restaurant's kitchen, you'd never eat there again. And so for many of us, ignorance is a bliss. Don't go sending me no documentaries about what happens. I want (laughs) to eat my McDonald's in peace. But Jesus saw it all. The ugliness of the world that turned against him. The rottenness of the human hearts hardened towards him. He saw the depth of our sins, but decided all the more to save us from our sins. He came to save sinners. Friends, notice the text doesn't say that Christ Jesus came to save Republicans or Christ Jesus came to save Democrats. It doesn't say that Christ Jesus came to save white people or that Christ Jesus came to save black folk. 
It doesn't say that Christ Jesus came to save people who had good jobs or good credit or came from good families or who lived good lives. No, Christ Jesus came to save sinners, the whole lot of us. And friends, we need to be saved because our sins lead to death, to eternal death and torment and wrath at the hands of God in an eternal hell. That's the flip side of salvation from sin, judgment for sin, condemnation for sin. If Jesus had not come to the world to save, the whole world would be headed to hell. But John 3, 16 to 17 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And how did he save? Well, we read about it earlier in Isaiah 53. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord took all our sins and laid them on him. Christ Jesus came and he died in our place for our sins. As the wages of sin is death, Christ paid the bill for us. But three days later, he rose again as sort of a a receipt showing that the penalty had been paid in full, that the father fully accepted his sacrifice and that his death had accomplished its purpose. He commands all people now to turn from our sins, all sinners to turn from our sins and to place our faith in him alone, the one who came to save sinners so that we might have salvation. Friends, have you done that? Have you done that? Have you renounced your allegiance to sin and entrusted yourself to Jesus for salvation? What's stopping you? You might think that you've done too much wrong, committed too much sin, slept with too many people, done too much drugs, but that is a lie from the devil trying to keep you in damnation. I mean, look at the end of verse 15. Uh, Paul says, I am the foremost of sinners, the chief of sinners. Uh, Look at my track record. I actively opposed Christ and killed Christians. You ain't gonna get no much worse than that. I'm the worst of sinners. But Christ is a merciful Savior. Look at verse verse 16. And Paul says again, I received mercy. And for this reason, not only that I might receive the, the wonderful benefits of salvation, but that in me, as the foremost, as the worst kind of sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. When Jesus saved Paul, he had you in mind. 
He had me in mind. He picked a man that nobody in the world would have thought would become a Christian. And he not only made him one, he made him the chief ambassador for Christ. Half our New Testaments are written by this former blasphemer and persecutor and insolent opponent. And he did it all as an example of his patience and power to save sinners now. You might think that what you've done is beyond salvation. That the life you've lived is past redeeming. But Paul presents himself as exhibit A that that's not the case. Regardless of how you walked in here today, all the baggage you came in here with, you can unload it with Jesus. Lay your sins down at the feet of his cross today. He died for them so that you might experience the freeness of his forgiveness. Talk more about that. Talk to, to me after the service. Talk to someone around you. We love to point you to the saving power of Christ Jesus. You know, this all has some pretty powerful implications for us. If Christ is merciful and gracious towards sinners, if he saves the, the worst of sinners as a demonstration of his great patience and power, then for one, we should never lose sight of his work in our lives. We, like Paul, ought to regularly remember how drastic a salvation Jesus has worked in us. I mean, even if your testimony isn't as outwardly dramatic as Paul's, all of us have this testimony. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was once dead in sin, but I'm now alive in Christ. We ought to marvel at the fact that we're Christians. I mean, some of your family members and friends and people from your neighborhood would have never thought that you would be a Christian. And to marvel at the fact that God has not only saved you, but set you into his service. Yes, Paul has a unique service as an apostle, but we all have a service as ambassadors for Christ. We've all been given the commission to go make disciples of others. Lord has saved us and equipped us. But all this marveling should move us to act like our Savior. You know, you know, I think we can sometimes get to the point where we see clearly the sins of other people. And with striking clarity, we can see how wicked the terrorist is, how sinful the murderer and drug dealer is. How opposed to God's will the homosexual and fornicator are. We can perfectly point out sins. But friends, is that where you stop? I hope you're not satisfied simply pointing out sin and criticizing sinners. I hope that the sight of sinners moves you to introduce them to the Savior. Jesus sought out sinners to save them. Do you? Do you have hope that the terrorist can be transformed? That the drug dealer can be delivered? That the homosexual can be healed? That the fornicator can be forgiven? This passage shows that they can. Your own life shows that they can. You are the worst sinner you know. And Christ saved you. He can save them as well. Would you model the compassion and patience of Christ to move towards sinners? 
in their rebellion as you seek to lead them to experience the transforming grace of Christ. That's the foundation that drives each, each of us. It's by grace that any of us are what we are today because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so that becomes our main content, our main message, our main ministry, right? Our main focus is what Jesus has done in the gospel. Amen. Paul wants Timothy, and by extension us, to focus on the gospel of God's grace towards sinners as the foundation for life and ministry, something to ground yourself upon and never to move away from. False teachers are undergirded by a different message, by untruths. They've moved on to talk about myths and genealogies, but all they produce is speculations and empty talk. But this message of the gospel, look at what it produces, transformed lives. Let that undergird all that you do and say. Paul closes this little section much as he began by giving praise to God. Look at verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, and let all God's redeemed people say, amen. The grace of God towards sinners is the foundation for all our faithful ministry. Point number two, and I promise more briefly, the grace of God towards sinners is the fuel for faithful ministry. That is, what God has done for us in Christ drives us to carry out the duties he's given us to do. Let's look at verses 18 through 20. Paul says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Remember, it was the, the gospel charge that Paul says up in verse 11 he was entrusted with. That sparked him into praise for God's saving grace in verses 12 through 17. Well, here Paul reminds Timothy that, Timothy that he too has been entrusted with the same charge to be a faithful minister of the gospel. And part of that charge, as we learned last week, was to oppose false teachers who were promoting something other than the gospel. Now, not many of us enjoy confrontation. We don't like conflict, or at least we shouldn't. But if you're going to be a faithful Christian, some kind of conflict and confrontation will be unavoidable. It's never nice, but it's sometimes necessary. But to prepare him, it's as if Paul pumps Timothy up with so much of the power and the glory of the gospel and the verses above that Timothy will be ready and eager to defend it at all costs. He wants them to consider the preciousness and the power of the gospel and to let that drive him on his mission. I think sometimes that's why we can grow apathetic towards our duties as Christians, our task to evangelize and to defend the faith. I think sometimes we simply know what we need to do, but before we do it, we don't consider what Jesus has already done. 
I think the method here is instructive. Delight yourself in the Lord and his work and let that drive you to your duties for him. Paul means for Timothy to to meditate first on God's work in his life. Which he says in verse 18 includes prophecies previously made about him. Now we don't know exactly what those prophecies were. But in chapter 4 verse 14 we learn that they were made by the council of elders of pastors as they laid their hands on Timothy installing him as an elder as a pastor. Remember their words Timothy Paul says. Remember what was said about you when you first became a pastor there. Perhaps they were words ensuring him that the God who set him apart would ensure see that his ministry is maintained and sustained. Perhaps they were words encouraging Timothy that, that Jesus, who never lies, said that he would never leave or forsake Timothy. That he who left heaven for Timothy's sake would not leave Timothy helpless in the ministry at Ephesus. Whatever the exact words were, Paul calls Timothy to remember them and to by them wage war against spiritual enemies and against opponents of Jesus. Defend the faith even as you hold tightly to it, the faith in Christ alone as presented in the gospel. Some, Paul says at the end of verse 19, have rejected it. And in doing so, have made a shipwreck of their faith. Maybe you've seen it happen. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, for any length of time, a member of a church for a while, you've seen people drift away from Jesus. It's often not sudden, but slow. Maybe even imperceptible at first. But steadily, They lose sight of Christ, take their focus off the gospel and on to other things, and end up heading in the wrong direction. Is that person you now? Have you, like the false teachers in Ephesus, taken your eyes off Jesus? Is what excites you and animates you Not the glory of Christ in the gospel, but all the various issues of the day. All the interesting theories or concepts that are there. You still claim to to love Jesus. But you really can't do so with a clear conscience, can you? You know you have a divided heart. Well, friends, consider the danger here. Drifting away from Jesus, just like a ship that drifts slowly off course, will lead to a shipwreck, Paul says. You move away from the gospel of grace and you find yourself sinking in a sea of sin. And as an example, Paul lists two people in verse 20, Hymenaeus and Alexander. In 2 Timothy verse 2, verse 17, we learn that Hymenaeus swerved from the truth, teaching that the resurrection had already happened upsetting the faith of some. And so as to preserve the truth of the gospel, Paul says here that he put he, Hymenaeus, and Alexander out of the church. That's what that phrase 
handed over to Satan mean? It's the same phrase that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. When he instructs the church to practice church discipline and to put a man in unrepentant sexual sin out of the church, to hand him over to Satan. That's what Timothy is to boldly do in Ephesus with the false teachers. And not to allow their teaching to spread, but to oppose them. And if they refuse to repent, to excommunicate them. But how is that displaying the grace of God? That seems like solely the judgment of God. Well, in some ways it is. But notice Paul's purpose. Look at the end of verse 20. Hand them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. What motivates Paul to think that Hymenaeus and Alexander might rightly be instructed, might be corrected? What gives them any hope that their course might be changed? It's not because of any of their actions. I mean, their sinful actions have led them to be excommunicated from the church. But it's the truth of verse 15. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's the truth of verses 12 and 13. That Christ appointed Paul to his service. Even though he was once a blasphemer. And so even as Paul sees these men blaspheming God, he holds out hope that the grace of God can transform them. And he calls Timothy to minister out of that hope of what God, by his grace, can do. The grace of God towards sinners is to serve as the fuel for Timothy as he faithfully ministers. And it's to serve as the fuel for us as we faithfully minister. Reminding us of the grace that God has shown us in saving us. And holding out that grace as shaping what we teach and what we preach, and what we practice as a church. Never forget what God has done for you, and never forsake telling others what he can do for them as well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace that has abounded to sinners like us. Lord, that has overflowed our cups, Lord, so that we run over with praise and thanksgiving. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would sustain us by your grace, strengthen us by your grace, save some, some among us this morning by your grace. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.